Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warriors in Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Bob Hoover was one of history's greatest pilots. He learned to fly as a teenager in Tennessee, flew over 50 combat missions in World War II, and went on to become a legendary experimental test pilot. Hoover was Chuck Yeager's backup pilot in the Bell X-1 program and flew the chase plane when Yeager first broke the sound barrier. In the late 1940s, Hoover went back to school to pursue his doctorate in engineering, but he remained a sought-after test pilot. He turned down numerous offers to return to flight testing, but then he was contacted by North American Aviation. I got calls from Boeing, Northrop, Convair, and then North American called. And I told Colleen, I said, gee whiz, I can't turn them down. They've built the best airplanes I've ever flown in my life. And I think that's where I, I should go, and I can, if I do it the way I've planned it, I can study, I can work in engineering, I'll, I'll get the knowledge I would have gotten by going for a PhD right within that company while I'm flying. And so I, that's exactly what I did. And I talked with Lee Atwood early on, who was Mr. Big, he and Dutch Kennelberger, and I told him what my plan was. I said I'd like to fly as a principal occupation for five years as an experimental test pilot, and then have dual capacities in other parts of the company and learn it all. And he said, that's a noble idea. You let me know when you're ready. And I went into his office at the end of five years, and. Uh, I started on another path of my life, but I stayed in the cockpit, and he let it be so until the day he retired. And that was passed along, and until I became 65, I was still in the cockpit, no matter what job I had within that company. So I've been a very fortunate person. It's North Americans, where I first got introduced to the F-86, and they were still testing it, of course. And I ended up doing the part of the original dive testing, uh, the spin test, but there were six hours. I uh, don't wish it to sound for a minute like I, I was doing the bulk of it because that was not the case. I was just one of six test pilots who were inexperimental, and as they would get killed, we'd hire somebody else in, and, and that it continued that way. Uh, I was privileged to be on the program, and it bounced around something like this. If you flew the airplane today and you went to 640 miles an hour and pulled 5Gs. He'd go to someone else the next day, Joe Lynch, and he'd pull, he'd go to the same speed, pull more G on around the table, and all six of us were getting a shot at the, an equal amount of risk. And then you go to a higher speed and a higher G until you finally prove the airplane to the specifications that were requested. So I went all the way through that F-86 program. What did you think of the first time you flew the F-86? What was your impression of that airplane? I was in love with it. The very moment I flew it, and have been to this day, of all the many airplanes I've ever flown, it goes into the numbers into the hundreds, it is one of the most forgiving easy flying airplanes that you could ever get in. It's, it's got the right characteristics. For instance, on spins, 
I once got it up to 54,000 feet, and that's terribly high for that old engine. And I put it into a spin. I don't recall now. It seems to me it was 36 turns. And just stop it right on a, an eighth of a turn, and you'd be right out of the spin. So its characteristics were so delightful. That's why everyone loved it. It, it, uh, it didn't have a dishonest bone in its body. It was just a delightful airplane. Do, do you think the, the, the engineers were aware they were creating something creative, uh, beautiful? I mean, there was some, there's something about the F-86, aesthetics-wise, which I don't think yeah, has ever been You're right. I mean, did, was that talked about in North American, that this was a... I don't recall ever hearing anything about that, but it, it, it had eye appeal to me the very first time I saw it. It looked like it was going fast just sitting there on the ramp. It had one, one thing that I didn't like about it, and still don't to this day, and I flew one not so long ago. The cockpit is uncomfortable. It's a pretty tight cockpit, uh, especially for a long-legged person like me, but the seat and the stick relationship were just not as comfortable as, as the current airplanes, or maybe even some of the older ones. I'm more comfortable in the P-51 than in the F-86. One of the unique things about the, the F-86 was its, its cockpit, the visibility. Besides being uncomfortable, perhaps, it did have a lot of visibility. Oh, indeed it did. It, it, it had all the visibility you needed for a fighter. Was that something that was unique among airplanes at that time? That, that kind of, uh... Uh, bubble canopies were coming along on most of the airplanes. We'd learned our lesson in World War II on that. The original P-51s were Razorback, and you didn't have a lot of visibility. I guess the worst airplane in the war, from my viewpoint, and I flew it several times, is the 109. It was just terrible, visibility-wise. You stayed with the F-86 program. Tell us about the time that it actually went supersonic. They knew they had done it going straight down. Everybody got the double whammy on the boom. By this time, they were putting Mach meters in, in, in the airplanes? Yes. Uh, it was slow in coming. We stayed with airspeed. Uh, the F-86 had miles per hour originally. And then they later changed over to knots. And then the Mach meter came along. And they co combined that right into the airspeed indicator, as a matter of fact. You mentioned about the the first flight of the F-86, uh, you were flying Chase. Could you tell us about that? Uh... Yes, North American made the first flight off of the North Base. It's, at now, it's now Edwards Air Force Base, but it was called the North Base at Muroc. And I was the Chase pilot in a long-nosed P-80 with a camera, the same type I used on the X-1 program. Uh, Welch had finished his flight, and he retracted the landing gear. Uh, that, that was something that a lot of first flights were made without retracting the landing gear. But North American elected to have the landing gear retracted on this first flight. And he pulled it up and, uh, and did some speed power runs with the airplane and I was photographing him all the time. And then he got set up for landing and he put the gear handle down and he couldn't get a green light on the nose gear and I was there to advise him as chase pilot that the nose gear was about 45 degrees. The company advised him on the company frequency in the company control room to go ahead and belly the airplane in. And I kept advising George not to. There was a lot of controversy back and forth. So he had the gear up and he was turning the base leg and I said, George, believe me, you aren't going to get hurt if you put that gear down. It'll hardly skim the nose. I said, I've landed airplanes without nose gears before. And I said, it's no big deal. So at the last minute, he put the gear, down, gear handle down. The main gear came out and locked and still 45 degrees. And I landed right alongside of him. And we were right in formation. And as the airplane slowed down, I could see the gear coming out and I kept saying hold it off hold it off hold it off and he said I got a green light just as it touched so it was a good decision for him to make now the Navy at this time was also uh, 
they had a straight wing FJ Fury. How did those airplanes compare? Well, the FJ-1 was a straight-wing airplane, and of course it was limited in speed. I never flew it, but I would guess it couldn't have been more than eight-tenths Mach number, about like the P-80s and P-84s. They were, they were all limited to that. But you went on and flew later versions of the, uh, tested later versions of the Fury, right? I made the first flight on the Navy version, and it was called the FJ-2. And the difference between that airplane and an F-86 is that we had folding wingtips on it. We had a, a thing that came out of the fuselage underneath the cockpit called a POSDIC, and that was a name given by the Navy. It was a barrier. It would catch the barrier. If you, if you snapped a wire, it would, it would uh, throw you into the barrier, which would save you going over the nose of the carrier. It had a hook, and it was the first time the Navy had used an A-frame hook, and it was just that. Uh, it was anchored at the top, at the bottom of the fuselage like this with a big shoe down here to, to snatch the hook. I had an interesting experience with that. I had finished the, the pre-carrier trials where I'd taken catapult shots and arrested landings, and some of those were pretty exciting. For instance, an off-center engagement. You have, to, you have to demonstrate the airplane as if you were the worst pilot in the whole world. And so you've got a deck that is so wide, and you have to assume that you're going to catch the wire off to one side. And I had to make engagements 27 feet offset from the center line. And when that happens, I would hit the deck, and the airplane would just go over sidewise like this, and it, it, I would be snagged in there so tightly, it would throw my helmet right out on the deck. This was on an aircraft carrier? Oh. This was a wooden wooden aircraft carrier on the desert floor. And we had the arresting gear. And then I went back to Pax River at the Navy Flight Test Center and did the same thing there with the catapults and the arresting gear. But it was pretty hair-raising. And the hard landings, we'd have to make uh, landings e equivalent to a pitching deck in a high sea. And some of those landings were just awful. You just, you'd, your helmet would come right down on your nose and you'd hit it like this and keep going, go around. And they, this was the first time we had high speed, uh, it was called Trody, and they could give me an instant readout on what my sink rate was. Up until then, it would take months and months to do the carrier trials to get the loads that were required to know that the airplane could take it on the carrier. Well, I finished all of that, and somebody said, have you had the airplane supersonic yet? And I said, no, but I'm up here 40,000 feet. I'll just have a go at it. And I was right off the ocean out here where the boom, the boom wouldn't hit any housing area. And I rolled it over, and all of a sudden, I got double vision, just like this. I couldn't see. I went into classic flutter. And I got it out, fortunately. Most of the time, you aren't that lucky. And I recovered it and explained what, what had happened. And, oh boy, the, it seemed like the world was coming to an end. Here we're going to build thousands of these airplanes, and now we've got a flutter problem. So we didn't know what changes had caused this flutter problem. So I had to go back out and dive it again. And, you know, you can, you can turn into powder. Uh, that picture on the wall over there, that's classic flutter, and it disintegrates in milliseconds, and you along with it. So it's not a fun test program to go through when you're doing flutter tests. In this case, they took the Fosdick off the bottom. They took the hook off. They did, I did a flight with the Fosdick. That didn't clear it up. Then we took the hook off, and, and I made dives after each of those. I don't remember. I don't recall how many dives I made, but every one of them was a hair raiser. I turned on the instrumentation for the landing gear. The landing gear was stressed for instrumentation, and it wasn't stressed. Any, nothing on the airplane was stressed for flutter. But we picked up 35 cycles per second on the landing gear instrumentation, and so then they, that started pinpointing things to the aerodynamics. We had changed a little piece of metal in the trailing edge of the ailerons, 
where the two skins come together. And we change from aluminum to magnesium. Or maybe it was magnesium to aluminum, I can't remember which. But the, the ailerons had been balanced statically, but not dynamically. And the slight fraction of an ounce difference between that, those pieces of metal created the flutter. So we changed it, and the flutter problem was gone. I delivered the airplane, and we put it on the carrier. On June 25, 1950, the Korean War began, bringing new challenges for North American aviation and the F-86 program. What was going on in North America during this time, during the Korean War? They were new versions of the Sabre coming out. Uh... Well, we were, we were working on a lot of different airplanes. Uh, we had the, the D model coming along for air defense. Uh, we had the H model that was under development, uh, though we hadn't flown it at that point in time, if I remember correctly. Uh, we had the F-100 coming along. As a matter of fact, it made its flight uh, just before the Korean War ended. Wouldn't that have been an airplane for that war? Bob, tell us about the time you went to Korea. Uh, you were testing a, uh, or they were having problems with a type of wing. Can you explain that wing and, and what, what that was about? Well, the F-86s were costing a lot to operate in Korea. And one of the big expenses on the day-to-day -day operational costs were the external fuel tanks, which would be dropped as soon as you engage the enemy or if you had to drop them to get rid of the drag in order to get home with your internal fuel. So th those losses were rather large. The engineering department came up with a what we called a 6-3 leading edge design. And the object was to increase the cord from leading edge to trailing edge of the wing by six inches at the root, three inches at the tip. And that slight increase could accommodate 70 gallons on each side or a total of 140 gallons, which would be equivalent because it was in a clean airplane. Carrying that much fuel clean would be equivalent to carrying I think it was, we had 110 gallon tanks at one point in time, so it was equivalent to 220 gallons of fuel. Then we later made the 200 gallon tanks and put those on, but it gave you a lot more range without the drag. In addition to that, we felt we were getting an increase in airspeed. It turned out that we had an erroneous reading that the pitot boom had to be 50% of the cord out ahead of the wing to be in clear, undisturbed air. When we first flew this airplane, we didn't extend at the tip where the pitot boom is located that extra inch and a half that it would have had to have been longer than it, than it turned out to be. And we were really feeling happy about this increase in speed of 25 knots. And one day, Joe Lentz said, uh, I was in there testing another airplane, and he said, Bob, how about flying formation with me, and let's check out the airspeeds. And that's the first time we found out that we were in error on the airspeed indication. But we, we found that we had some advantages to this 6-3 leading edge in other ways. We had a, the onset of buffet at high Gs occurred at higher Gs. So that was a big plus for turning radius. And fortunately, the design people came up with the correct place to put the fences on the wing. If you recall ever looking at a MiG-15, they've got these big high fences. The purpose of fences or vortex generators are to keep the flow of air smooth across the wing. On a swept wing airplane, the flow of air comes pretty straight next to the fuselage. The further out you go, the more it starts to turn and go towards the tip. And what you desire is a straight flow of air all the way out to the tip, across the, from the leading edge to the trailing edge of the wing, just straight. The fences accomplish that. After we once put, found the location that we first flew it with, which was perfect, we then put the fence at a lot of other different places, and the very first choice 
was the right one. That was the best place to have that fence. The airplane had one deficiency that was monumental at the time uh, with this solid leading edge. Remember, the idea was to put fuel up there. There, we flew it that way with, with the fuel aboard on a test airplane. But the Air Force decided not to go that route. The airplane had a characteristic with this solid leading edge. If you didn't have the proper airspeed for liftoff, if you rotated too quickly, the drag would build up between the nose and the tail and on the wing to such an extent that the airplane would lose its lift and mush right back into the runway. I found this out during my test work at Edwards. We were trying to figure out minimum liftoff speeds for the airplane at max gross. And I was using the lake bed. And I'd lift off and the airplane mushed right back into the, into the lake bed. I had 11 miles so I could just play with it all the way across the lake bed. And if I just dropped the nose and hold it, 10 knots additional airspeed, it'd fly right off. Whereas before with the slats, that bleed through of air over the leading edge of the main wing would give you lift and you could handle it at max gross weights. Get off a lot earlier. So that was the penalty we paid, higher takeoff speed. Uh, and it was very unfortunate because we did lose a lot of lives with it. And you were sent over to Korea to, uh, to teach the pilots about this. Can you tell us about that? Well, there were, there were two things that were involved in my visit to Korea. I had been doing some work uh, and I wasn't the only one involved in this concept on dive bombing. The F-86s were being used as, as bombers, not necessarily dive bombing, but the F-84s and, and all of the airplanes over there were doing saturation-type bombing, if you will. And they weren't getting very much accuracy out of their efforts, and yet they were still getting shot at. The object our people had in engineering was, let's see if we can figure out some easy way to use our existing gun sight and get the targets instead of missing them. And I worked with uh, some very interesting and smart people. One name pops out of the memory bank. Uh, Jack Cova was the engineer on this project with me. We got the idea that if we could eliminate those things that give you errors in dive bombing, uh, it would be to everyone's advantage. And we talked about the errors associated with dive angle. We talked about release altitude and release airspeed. If you can hit all of those right where you want them and know exactly what altitude, what airspeed you're going to have at that altitude and your dive angle, you can wipe out most of the errors in bombing except for wind. And I demonstrated that in, on calm days up at Edwards. And to train myself, I put lines on the canopy for each of these different degrees because it was guesswork up until then. But then once you learn the degree from looking at the horizon, you don't need the grease line on the, wind, on the canopy to tell you your angle. You've already got it memorized. Well, I was able to drop the bombs in the target. Not wouldn't have been just me. Any other pilot could have done it too uh, on a calm day, providing he got all those parameters squared away. General Al Boyd, who had been my former CEO at Wright Field, uh, called me up and talked to me about the project. And he came out to watch me demonstrate it. And he thought it was absolutely unbelievable. In fact, he even volunteered to stand on a 600-foot line of the target. And I refused to bomb with him there. And, and he circled in an avion while I was uh, doing the bombing. And he asked me to go to Korea and, and demonstrate this bombing technique and to also talk about this problem we had with the F-86 max gross weight takeoff. So that was my mission to Korea. At this point, Bob Hoover was a civilian, but if he was going to Korea, he wanted to fight. I wanted to fly desperately. I wanted air-to-air -air combat and thought I was going to get it. Uh, but it didn't quite work out, though I was told before I left that I was not to fly combat under any circumstances. When I got there, there was a general in command whose name was Glenn O. Barker. He was a three-star general, and he had a colonel who was his chief of operations by the name of George Brown. George later became chief of the staff of Air Force and then chairman of the Joint Chiefs before he died. General Barker's had 
other test pilots come out there and talk about the airplanes. And some of them were dear friends of mine. They didn't want to fly combat, and they spent all their time in Tokyo and came over for a day and went back. So when I visited General Barkas, he said, did you come out here to fight and fly, or are you going to go into Tokyo and chase the girls? And I said, sir, I came out here to fight and fly. And George Brown piped up. He said, General Barkas, this is a different breed of cat. He's one of us. And there isn't anybody that wants to fly or fight more than this gentleman. And Barkas says, well, if that's the way you feel, get suited up. <laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing in the world I'd ever heard. Though I had been told in, in Tokyo before coming over that I was not to fly combat, and it's understandable because I was already exposed to the F-100 program. I was exposed to the atomic bomb secrets. And when I got briefed for my first mission, the, a, a great friend of mine was the colonel in command of the wing, Frank Perigo, whom I'd worked for over at March Field before getting out of the service. He was a commanding officer of this wing. And he and, uh, and another colonel uh, were briefing the people, and they said, we've got a civilian flying with us today. And his name is John Doe. And if he has any kind of a problem while we're in North Korea, he's not to hit the ground alive. Is that clear? Does everybody understand that? We can't afford to have him captured. And I sat there and blinked my eyes, and I thought, gee whiz, at least I had a parachute in war, <laughs> in war two days and ever since. But now I'm, uh, I don't have that option. And he turned to me and he said, uh, is that acceptable? And I said, yes, it is. So off we went, and the first target was an airfield. And I dropped out of an overcast, uh, I didn't have time to do anything but pickle a bomb and just hope for harassment. I popped out of the clouds and got with the leader again. And the other 14 airplanes joined up on us, and the alternate target was a bridge that had been bombed many times but never hit. There were pockmarks all over the countryside. There was a main supply route into that part of Korea for the North Koreans. The leader rolled over and started down and pulled out, and I really lined up on the target. And I looked over my shoulder, and the bridge is gone. Number three says, hey, boss, you got a direct hit. And I kept thinking to myself, gee whiz, I know I got that bridge. And about that time, we started closing in on the leader, and he still had both bombs. He'd had an electrical system failure, and he hadn't been able to release his bombs. Well, now suddenly everybody realized that I hit the bridge, and maybe this old, old civilian knows something about flying that perhaps we could learn. So then they listened attentively, and uh, their accuracy started coming uphill quickly. It was gratifying to see that occur. The bad part of the whole trip was that I did see a lot of people killed while I was there. They hadn't gotten, just before I arrived, uh, two pilots had been killed on this takeoff problem. And uh, one base where I visited, the uh, pilot was lost, but uh, he lived three days. He burned very badly. His name was Benicky, and uh, he was a major. He was operations officer. A Colonel Stell pulled him out of the fireball, and he was burned very badly himself, but survived okay. And he told Colonel Stell that uh, I had told him everything to do, but he somehow panicked and didn't drop the nose, and he was heavily loaded. Uh, when I went up to Kempo, I was briefing all of the pilots in the base theater, and as we came out, the two fellows who weren't in the briefing were on alert, and one of them uh, did the same thing. He didn't dump his nose and get the airspeed, and he went into a, a facility there and killed five other people, in, including himself. So that part of it was sad. And then later on, after the war, we lost this F-86 one in the ice cream parlor and, and killed a lot of people, a lot of children, up in Sacramento. But it was something that needed to be taught, 
and needed to be uppermost in your mind uh, every time you flew that airplane with that configuration. Were, were slats eventually put back on other ver subsequent versions of the airplane? No, many of them continued with those uh, and never were replaced with slats. We designed slats later on that uh, were 6-3 leading edge slats. And so for the next block of airplanes that were built, we put the 6-3 leading edge slat. We, it, we gained a little over what we had originally in that these, these slats gave us better aerodynamic performance than we had with the original ones. So it was a smart move and a good investment. What were the deficiencies in the F-86A besides the uncomfortable cockpit? It had a boosted control system, and you couldn't pull the, the G that you would like to pull with it. For example, I was the, I was the uh, project pilot on the first irreversible control system. And we had that system in the E model, the F model, everything, everything after the, the A model, we had uh, a full boosted system. Uh, it was called irreversible, which meant that you had no direct linkage to the controls. It was all artificial feel. Prior to that time, we had what you have in your automobile. We had power steering. You lose the, the hydraulics, the power, and now you're still mechanical, but it's so stiff you can hardly park the car. You almost can't. Well, it was the same with an airplane. We had reached speeds whereby we couldn't maneuver because you weren't physically strong enough. So the, the object was to design a system that would be artificial feel, two hydraulic systems, in addition to your utility system, which operates the gear and the speed brakes and things like that. So there were two separate systems on the flight controls, the primary and the alternate. I was testing the prototype out of LAX, and it was before the runway was extended beyond Sepulveda, and there was no tunnel there. I took off on 2.5 left, and as the gear hit the wells, we learned later that we had a lockout of both hydraulic systems through the electrical system, and that neither one of the controls were working. But on the prototype that I was testing, we had mechanical ailerons and a mechanical rudder. And the airplane pitched up on me and just went right straight up to the stall and fell over. And I, as soon as I got some speed, I was, I was working the rudder and the elevators, and, but just completely out of control. And I yelled to the tower that I, I was, I'd lost the airplane clear the other runway. There was an airliner waiting to take off on 2-5 right. And uh, they got the message because I was going in the other direction. But I, I turned around and came back down, and, and I was, well, I guess, within 50 feet of the ground, and then headed right towards the flight test hangar. Just missed the top of the hangar and went up. And by this time, I'm getting smart. I don't want it to stall. So I booted it off just before it stalled. And then it pulled out maybe 100 feet off the ground. And then the next time, I booted it earlier, and, and it fell off. And I was getting another 50 feet. And I kept doing it, just whoop-de-doos. And then I'd, I'd rudder it to pointed out trying to get it away over the ocean so if I did go in, I, I wouldn't kill people. And I kept doing this and I got it out across El Segundo. And everybody was saying, bail out. Well, I can't bail out over a populated area. So I kept doing this and getting smarter each time I'd go up and I'd chop the power before it'd stall and catch it again with the, with the throttle. And I, then I started trying to control it with flaps and landing gear and dive brakes. And I finally got a pretty stable equilibrium, and I was over the water, and everybody's still yelling, bail out. And I'd, I'd just, there was a fog bank moving in. I knew I'd never be found if, that, if I went in out there. And it was in the wintertime, it was cold. So I headed northbound with it and told them I was going to try and make it to Edwards. And if I had to get out, I could still get out over the mountains up here. By this time, they had airplanes chasing me. I got to the mountains and hit rough air, and I lost control again. 
I got it stabilized with the same technique I'd used before, and I went out towards Barstow to the far east side of the lake bed and set up an approach. And in old reciprocating airplanes, the way there's the stability and control works, if you add power, the nose comes up, take the power off, then the nose comes down. You don't get that dramatic change with a jet airplane. It takes quite a speed change to make that happen. The power alone won't make it happen, so you, you have to go a pretty wide range of speeds to make it go up. If you just take the power off, it just sets up a glide rate. So I went out uh, way beyond the edge of the lake bed and got everything, had everything stabilized, and I was eased the power off, and nothing was changing. And the airplane started dropping, started descending. And Joe Lynch was my chase pilot at that point in time. And I thought the last words I would ever hear, everybody kept saying bail out. From the mountains on over, they said, get out, get out. And I said, I'm going to give it a try. Well, Joe was right there with me, and he said, Bob, do you know how fast you're going? And I said, yes, Joe. He said, I'm, I'm begging you to get out. This is your last chance. And I said, Joe, I'm committed. And he said, uh, all I can tell you is I told you so. And I thought, well, that's the last thing I'll ever hear. And I was at 240 knots and would only spin tested the wheels in the lab to 210 knots. And I was coming down pretty fast at a pretty high rate of sink. And I had almost full throttle on. Landing gear flaps and dive brakes were extended. And that airplane, made the most beautiful landing I've ever seen in my life. The swept wings picked up the ground effect and it just cushioned it on and I chopped the throttle as soon as it touched. And it just flattened out and I rolled 11 miles right up to the main base and in front of ops. And I went right up the ramp and Jack Ridley, who was on the X1 program with Chuck Yeager and myself, came out to meet me and he's it was in Oklahoma. He said, Bob, that was the hairiest ride I've ever heard. And he said, what in the world happened? And I said, Jack, grab the stick. And I was bleeding right through here. I had torn the skin pushing on that stick. And he grabbed the stick and he says, Bob, I believe it's frozen in concrete. That is what hairy. So you rode that wild bucking airplane. 40 minutes. It's one of the most hair-raising rides I've ever had. And I've been broken up a lot of times and bailed out quite a few times. But that was a hair-raiser because it was lasting so long and so much depended upon the outcome of that saving that airplane. We were thousands of F-86s after that. And we would never have known what it was. It was stray voltage that got it. And so now we separated things so they could never happen again. And the system was very successful. Now, Joe McConnell, a famous ace in, in Korea, he was flying an H up there at Edwards. He had the same thing happen to him. We had advertised, if it's a production airplane, lose the airplane, save your life. Joe was enamored with the idea of saving the airplane, and uh, he knew it had been done once successfully, and he thought he could do it too. But it pitched, and it got him, and he was too low to bail out. So it was the same control problem? It, we don't know that it was identical because we don't believe it could have been identical because we thought we'd eliminated the stray voltage because we built thousands of airplanes by the time Joe was killed. But it was some type of thing in the control system that failed, and we'll never know what it was. But it couldn't have been the identical thing because that's the only one we ever lost other than, well, we didn't lose mine. But, uh, so it's very unlikely that it was identical, but it was a similar type of failure. So your your experience in the F eighty six A with this with this program, it was a predecessor to an E model. Yes. And you, it, by way of introduction, kind of a post introduction, you were, you were working on this new control system for the for the a later model. Yes. To give it more transonic control, or what was the purpose of this whole evolution? To give it more controllability under all circumstances. For example, when we demonstrated that, that first airplane to the high G and the high speeds, we would go down to the Salton Sea 
just so we'd have an extra few feet to play with on recovery. That's how close it was. And then to get the, to get the G at the same speed, we'd go way faster than the design. And then as we were pulling all we could pull, we'd hit the speed brake at the same time and then get both hands on the stick to get that extra G because the speed brakes would had a tendency to pitch the airplane up. So we used a combination of you'd get faster than you were going because as soon as you open the speed brakes, it's going to start decelerating, slowing up. So we'd hit the speed brake, grab both hands and pull as hard as you could. And that's the only way we could get to 7.33 G at max speed. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was the first time that we'd ever flown an airplane that whereby you weren't connected to, to the surfaces themselves. Uh, you had boost, but you, were, you still had some direct connection. Now all we had were hydraulic systems, an electrical system, and bungees, and springs. And we put artificial feel into the stick. And we had 10 pilots from Tactical Air Command come out here. And all ten of them had a different feeling in their mind as to what it felt like. Well, I'd like it to be heavier. I'd like it lighter. Well, a little bit different this way or that way. But if you had ten people, all of them would say, you know, it ought to be like this. Our feelings were, and mine had always been, you give a pilot a good airplane and he'll learn how to fly it. It doesn't make any difference what those forces are. Take the F-18. Uh, John Lehman was Secretary of the Navy and he invited me to evaluate the airplane because it had cost overruns and some deficiencies in the airplane. And they were getting a lot of flack out of Congress because of these problems. He asked me at the Paris Air Show if I would evaluate the airplane because he thought I would be honest and have no bone to pick with anybody and just tell him what the airplane was like. It had a lot of deficiencies. I made that same statement to John Lehman. I said, Sure, it's got some problems, and they can all be fixed. But don't cancel a program just because of the problems. Fix the problems. The pilots love it. They don't care. They've got an airplane that goes real fast, and it does everything they want it to do, and they'll learn to fly it, and they'll learn to live with whatever the, the, the deficiencies are. Then you fix them as you get money and the opportunity, as you find the fixes. But go ahead and keep buying the airplanes. This first block means nothing. The next block will get better. And then the next. And then you go back and retrofit and fix. And then you finally get them up to where you really want them. But that airplane was in such heavy buffet when you would pull into high G's. You just sit there and go, go like this. But you could still knock down an enemy airplane with it. You could sidetrack and you get your kills. Well, that's all you really care about. Now clean up the buffet when the opportunity presents itself. And that's exactly what they did with that airplane. Well, I, I didn't know you, you, you tested that. I guess it's yeah. widely publicized you did No, that. it wasn't. In retrospect, do you think that the, the F-86 was uh, so vastly superior to the MiG that whoever was flying it would have scored kills? Or was, was it there something about the pilot training? Was it the unique combination of pilot skill and, and airplane? Because both the MiG and the, and the Sabre were based on Similar data. One interesting thing, before I went out to, to Korea, we had some engineers who were so skilled that they could take a photograph of an airplane and tell you what its performance might be. And we, through our intelligence at the time, which is no longer classified, we knew what the MiG looked like, and we had photographs of it. And we had ex the exact performance. And when the first MiG was captured over there, defected, there was Tom Collins, Chuck Egg, and Al Boyd went out and evaluated it. The data we had 
which I took with me to Korea, matched precisely what they found when they found when they flew the airplane. And yet those fighter pilots out there were telling me that the airplanes, that the MiGs were, were going supersonic. They'd say, well, I was right on his tail and we were going, going straight down and I was above Mach 1 and he was right out there in front of me. Under duress of combat, the adrenaline flowing, sometimes things are not just exactly as you thought them to be. And there's no way that airplane could ever go supersonic. It's, it's in a world of trouble when you get up to real high speeds with it. But you know, there's a situation where you like this and the airplane rolls down and you start from here and you get a misconception of really what speeds he might be flying as compared to yourself. Or that maybe the closing rate doesn't grab, grab at you real quick. But the airplane was never supersonic ever in its history, the 15. So we knew, I mean, we had, we, we had intelligence that basically knew what the airplane was capable of. When they made those flights on that MiG-15 and, and gave out the information I've just given you, I talked to some people who by this time were test pilots with our company. And they said that the fellows were all a bunch of liars, that, that Chuck and, and Tom Collins and Boyd were a bunch of liars. Because they, they said, we know the airplane is supersonic. We've been sitting there right with it. And I said, the facts are there. The reality is there. But some people have, have never accepted that the airplane wasn't faster than it truly is. Did the people in North America, did they, did they regard the F-86 as one of their crown achievements, like the P-51 Mustang, was that? Oh, indeed so they did. Yes, indeed. They considered it a winner right from the beginning. And they were strongly behind it. Is it true that it, it, it stayed in, is, is one of the mostly used airplanes, I mean, in terms of its allied use? And I think somebody said that the only other airplane that's been in service longer is a C-130. I don't know if that's, that's true or not. Well, I imagine DC-3 probably capture that title. There's but still it, a lot of, still actually flying around the world. Hauling freight. DC-3s? Yeah. What about the Sabre? How many of those are flying? I really don't think there are many. Who are the civilian people who are flying? Are there? There's quite a few of them uh, owned by civilians. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Now you put, after, I mean, you were still with North America when you put on the show with the F-86? Oh, yes. And that was, I mean, that airplane was owned by North America? No, I went around the, all over the world putting on demonstrations with the F-86. And until 59, I believe it was, or maybe it was 60, no association or connection with any of the services. I would receive phone calls from the Pentagon. We would like to have you at Laughlin Air Force Base. We're having an open house. I'd go down, and at the bases where they were still flying F-86s, I would go there, like Williams Air Force Base, put on a demonstration for the trainee pilots, let them see what the airplane can really do if you know the envelope. Not that we'd ever ask any fighter pilot to go out and, and fly the feathered edge, but I would do the aerobatics to try and get them to listen to me. I'd land short, take off short, and, and do low altitude aerobatics. But I always demanded old brakes and new tires because I didn't want them to think that I'd ruin the tires. So I wanted new tires so they'd still be new when I came back in. And I'd have a mark off 2,500 feet on the runway. And I'd land and, and stop, turn around at the 2,500 foot line, and then take off downwind to the short end of the runway. And if you think it didn't get their attention, it really did. My point was, if you practice bugging your airspeed, putting it right where you want it, and try to do that so perfectly controlled every flight, 
Then on that dark, rainy night, you'll still be able to do the same thing on that wet runway and not slide off the end. If you put on five knots for your wife and five for each of your kids, that isn't going to do it. You're going off the end of the runway on that wet, rainy night. But if you practice every flight, putting it on the numbers, on the recommended airspeed for a touchdown, then you're, you're going to be safe as can be in the worst circumstances. Or if you have to go into a short field, you will know how to do it. You obviously can't take off at max gross weight in 2,500 feet. But if you know the max gross weight takeoff characteristics, you'll get it off in the minimum distance. So that was sort of the lecture that went along with the demonstrations. But I ended up doing them after that was over with, and they kept providing me with the airplanes, and they provided me with the F-100s, and it, it went on like that for years. Bob Hoover continued his association with North American Aviation for 36 years. He remained on the air show circuit, performing spectacular aerobatic demonstrations until he finally retired from flying in 1999 at the age of 77. However, it was anything but retirement. He continued advising other aviators for many more years. Bob Hoover passed away October 25, 2016. He was 94 years old. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.